Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. in this uh, sermon series called Silent Mode for a few weeks now. It feels like a while, but we've missed a couple in between there. Uh, but Pastor Bruce kind of started this, um, this series off, and, and he, he kind of opened up the story of David and, and, and talked about some of the distractions that come up uh, that keep us from hearing God's voice. And if we're not careful, uh, if we're distracted from hearing God's voice, we can find ourselves going in a direction in life that we never wanted to take, and it can lead to some very destructive things if we're not careful. And so then last week, Pastor Rob spoke, and, and I really appreciated the message again last week, and he looked at the life of Elijah and talked about, uh, the, the title was Turning Down the Noise, and it was the story of how God spoke to Elijah, and it wasn't in this scenario, it wasn't through the fire or the earthquake or the wind or all the big things and dramatic things that we often associate God speaking through in the Old Testament, but it's, he spoke to Elijah in a low whisper or in a still small voice. And in unpacking that story, we, uh, Pastor Rob talked about the fact that sometimes you, maybe you can find yourself in a cave of fear or a cave of doubt or, or a cave of pain and, and like, like Elijah was physically hiding in a cave, but God wants to speak to you, but sometimes we need to turn down the noise and listen to what he has to say. And so that was a powerful word. So we're going to continue in this series this morning, and, and uh, I want to unpack a scripture uh, with you in a moment. But first of all, I want to ask you a question, because I don't know, is it just me, or, or are you easily distracted sometimes? Anyone? It's only a couple? Be honest, be honest. Okay, so, so I'm not the only one. So I can be so easily distracted, it's embarrassing, it's embarrassing sometimes. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I can be on my way somewhere driving, or I can be, on, you know, I can be, I can be do, about to do something, and then this happens to me all the time. I'm, I'm telling you. I could be on the way to the grocery store because Angela will often say, you know, on your way home today, can you pick up these three things? Simple enough. So I go to the grocery store, and I walk in through the doors, and I cannot remember what I'm there to get. I have no idea. And I'm just looking around, start walking, and you see chocolate bars. I'm not sure if that was what you had on the list, but I'll take some of those. Or you can be easily distracted by all kinds of things. And, and, and so I've, I've learned a, a method to not be distracted or, or lose my train of thought when I go to the grocery store. I say, you text me a list, and I'll get it. She says, it's only two things. I need a list. <laughs> Give me the list. It's embarrassing. Just yesterday, I was picking up some items at the pharmacy because my son has been sick the last few days, and there was like six or seven things that we wanted, that she wanted for him, and you know, I came home with about 80% of those things. They were on the list. I just didn't even see it. That's how bad I can be distracted. I seen somebody, I started talking to someone, and those last two things got missed. Had to make another trip. Or I can be on my way somewhere, and maybe this is just me. Maybe it's only me that does this. But I was driving. You know, we're, we left the house. We're driving to swimming lessons with our kids. And all of a sudden, Angela will say, where are you going? And I'll, I'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And it's, I don't know if it's like muscle memory or something. But all of a sudden, I'm pulling into the church parking lot. And she's like, there's no pool here for the kids. 
I can be so distracted all the time by the things that are going on. I can be just lost in my thoughts. I can be thinking about something else. I can be listening to a song that's going on. I totally, or, you know, I'm so easily distracted. You see, distraction is simply something that prevents someone from giving their attention to something else. We know what distraction is. It happens to many of us, especially me. And I remember back in, I think it was late October or November, Pastor Bruce and I were actually meeting, we were chatting about, you know, where we're going to go in the new year, which is, it's now, we're, we're here. But we're, we're kind of dreaming and, and praying what God was saying, wanted to say to his church, because we, we kind of plan and, and ask God to lead us in these moments that we have to teach and, and speak as a team. And so we felt very strongly this word, uh, or this, this series, the idea of silent mode came very, actually crystal clear to us. It was loud and clear. Because we realize and we felt that in order for us to hear God's voice, especially where he's leading our church and where he's leading us and what, what he wants to do, because this is all God's, We're just want, we just want to serve him faithfully. If we want to know where God's leading us, we need to hear what he's saying, right? And going into this year, I felt like this was a great uh, time for us to do this silent mode and, and wouldn't you know it, like things were shut down and, and snowstorms came and we didn't, it was really silent. We didn't plan that, by the way, and don't blame it either. But it's, it's interesting that many times we found ourselves lately a little more disconnected than usual, perhaps. And, uh, and so we're just wanting to hear God's voice above the noise. And I believe that in order for us to be healthy, whether that's as an individual, as a husband or a wife, or as a father or a mother, or, 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 or for you as a student or in your workplace, or for us as a church, in order for us to be healthy in these regards, there are certain disciplines or habits that we need to cultivate in our lives, that we need to make priority. And one of those, Jesus modeled so well, and we're going to look at that in a few moments. But first, I want to look at a scripture, a portion of scripture that's anything but silent. This particular text is actually, as you'll, you'll see, it's almost opposite of what silent mode would be. This morning, we're going to look at a, a scene in scripture that always caught my attention. And last Sunday night, I had an opportunity to speak and share with the young adults that were here. And I spoke along these lines uh, from, from, a, from this text as well. But I felt strongly this week to, uh, it's a little bit of a different direction, but God was saying, uh, we're not done here yet with this here text for me. So for many of the room, you probably read this text. It might have caught your attention. If you've never heard or read this scene in Scripture before, as I read it, you're probably going to say, okay, I can see why that would catch your attention. You know, you see this scene described in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record this. Many times in Scripture, uh, there's a scene in Matthew that's also captured by Luke, but Mark and John didn't have it included in their letters. Or sometimes Mark and John would have something included in their letters, but Matthew and, and Mark maybe hadn't in theirs, and things like that happen. But this one is in all four Gospels. And so I think that kind of speaks to the importance of understanding the significance of what's actually taking place and, uh, and what it means. So I'm going to read, I could have chosen... It from any of the Gospels, but this morning we're going to read from Mark, chapter 11, starting at verse 15. It says this, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves, and he would not allow any, anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said this. He said, is it not written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. They were conspiring against him. But because, but for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. Now, let me just make this scene a little bit clearer and give you a little bit of context of what's taking place here. This scene in Mark's gospel is actually the day after Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem is what, in what many of us would remember or know as the triumphal entry. And this triumphal entry was, was when Jesus came to Jerusalem and the scene was that he was coming in the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey and people were gathered in the streets celebrating because the Messiah had arrived. And as they were celebrating, they were laying palm branches on the grounds. People were taking their cloaks and putting on the pathway. And Jesus was coming in and they were shouting and they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. The Messiah has come. And they thought they were celebrating because they thought that Jesus had come to free them from the Roman oppression that they were under. You see, they thought he would be this kind of ruler and a king that would perhaps lead some kind of revolt or in some powerful way he was going to set them free from Roman rule. But that was actually not the purpose for which Jesus came. God certainly had a plan to bring freedom to the people. But it wasn't to free them just from Roman rule or oppression, but it was actually to free them from their sin. And he was going to provide a way for that. And so apparently, one of the first things Jesus did after arriving in Jerusalem, one of the first things that must have been on his agenda is that he was going to go and visit the temple. He was going to visit the temple. This was just before the Jewish Passover, so the temple and these temple courts that are being described, excuse me, they would have just been buzzing with busyness. It would have been so busy. As an important to understand that, that in this particular scene, Jesus is in what's known as the outer court of the temple. See, there was the inner court of the temple where the, the, the priests would be and people would go inside, the, Jews would, the Jewish people would go inside to bring their sacrifice, their animal sacrifice. They would do that inside the inner sanctuary, inner courts. But then there was this outer court. It was almost like the court precincts or the temple precincts. And this was huge. This was like multiple football field big, huge, Right? There would literally be probably hundreds of thousands of people that would come out and gather in these temple courts. It was a busy, busy place. And that was what was happening. And this was where the animal sacrifices were being sold in this outer court area. This was where the pagan coins that people would have, they would bring and they would exchange them for a different, a Jewish currency so that they could use that currency to purchase a, a, an animal to, to be purchased for a sacrifice. And, and all of this was happening. There was bartering and exchanging going on. There would have been sheep and cattle and pigeons and doves and oxen. And, and all of this was happening, people shoulder to shoulder. It was just crazy. It was just people everywhere. It was was chaotic. It was like a Costco on a Saturday before a snowstorm. <laughs> Crazy. No room to move, <laughs> perhaps. But it was just a busy spot. It was a busy place. And Jesus shows up in this outer court. And now he didn't go inside the sanctuary and make a scene like that. But in this outer court, he, he shows up. And Jesus does something that we've never quite seen from him before. 
The text describes Jesus as, as driving out the animals. He's, he's getting rid of all the animals. He's turning over the tables of the money changers. So there's probably coins and money going everywhere. He's kicking bird cages, perhaps. The benches from the money changers are being knocked over. It is just a scene. And that's what was happening. And, and this was a very eye-opening thing that was taking place. And then he takes an opportunity, apparently, to address the crowds with his words. I think he got their attention by now. And when he has their attention, he says, is it not written? And he's quoting this from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 56 and from Jeremiah 7. He's saying, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The literal translation is a cave of robbers. He's actually quoting, like I said, from the Old Testament. In other words, what he's saying What does that mean? What was he really saying? Well, the easiest way I can describe it is that he is saying to the people, he's saying, this, the temple, this place, is supposed to be a place of connection and communication with God. This is supposed to be a place where we come, you come to connect with God, but this place and this system has now become so chaotic. Something has to change. Something has to be done. I mean, I've heard and read this story many times. And what I love about this portion of scripture is that it reveals the heart of God in a way that's so expressive and so, whoa, it's actually hard to digest. Because I mean, you're thinking, you know, The fact that this meek, mild, kind, sweet, loving, miraculous, wonder-working Jesus shows up in a way and in a scene where he's throwing stuff and he's kicking stuff and he's driving out the animals and all this is taking place. I mean, this is different. It's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, Jesus, what's going on? I mean, a few scenes ago, you were blessing babies and now look at this. Because we, we kind of picture Jesus in a way that, you know, he's sitting on a rock, and you've seen the pictures of petting the lambs, holding the babies, right? But this looks so different. What's going on? But I want you to see, what I want you to see is how adamant and how passionate Jesus is to remove anything that keeps you from connecting with him. He would do, he wanted to remove anything that got in the way of people connecting with God. That's what he was about. So much so that he didn't just demonstrate this in the outer courts that day, in this scene, in the the outside of the temple, which was bold, but he would go and later demonstrate this in a way, on a cross, that would completely change the way that we connect with him forever. He didn't just come in to make a scene in the temple courts. He came to change the way that we connect with God. For the next few moments, what I'd like to do is talk about two barriers that the enemy, I believe, will use to prevent us from experiencing a connection with God. Because God is passionate and adamant about being connected to you and to me. Isn't that incredible to think about that the, creation, the creator of this world 
would want to make it possible to have a relationship with his creation. That we could have a relationship with God. Not through a priest anymore. Not from a far distance. Not like God feels a million miles away, but that we can have a personal relationship with a living God who loves us. That's an incredible, incredible thing. So we're gonna look at two barriers that I think the enemy will use to prevent us from experiencing connection with God. There's, probably, there's far more than just two barriers, but, but I think these are two probably of the most prevalent bar- barriers that we face in this life. And then I wanna talk about at the end an important discipline or habit that we need to cultivate in our lives in order for us to overcome those barriers, okay? That's where we're going. So barrier number one is this word condemnation. Can everyone say condemnation? Here's what's literally happening that day in the outer courts. People are showing up. They're showing up to this outer court area. And, and, And as they would show up, they would immediately... Some of them were immediately not welcome to go inside the temple, either because they were a non-Jew. If you were a Gentile, you, you, don't, get to, you don't get to worship God. You gotta stay out here. This is where you can be. You can't be in there. And so right away, it was like, oh, okay. If you, were, if you weren't a, a, a Jewish male, you weren't allowed inside. So every woman who wanted to worship or connect with God, there was no way to go. That just said, no, you're in the outer court, only out here. People would come and they would have their money to buy the sacrifice and, and when they brought it, it was a certain currency that had uh, these images on it and, and it was like a pagan, they called it like a pagan currency and they would say, you can't buy with that, you need to go exchange that money for some, some other money and when you do that, then you can bring that back and then you can buy a sacrifice and if you have enough money, how much do you have by the way? Oh, well, if you could get a little more, well you might be able to buy this sacrifice and you want to make sure you buy the right sacrifice because you want to be forgiven of your sin and, and there's this system going on and people were like, I got to do that, I got to do this, I don't belong, I'm not the right ethnicity, I'm not the right gender, what is going on? And so that was what was going on and there was all sorts of this condemnation that was happening right as people arrived. And so any non-male, non-Jew is not going to be respected in this process. People are being condemned. People are being marginalized. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And in case you ever wondered about how God now felt about this and what it had become, the scripture talks about it, as you've seen the son, you see the father. Like when you look at the actions of Jesus, it represents who the father is. Well, Jesus gets violent in this scene. And he starts pushing things out of the way. He is opposed to these approaches. And he says, no, you're driving a wedge between people and God. No, you're doing this. To, it's condemning people. It's making sure people aren't connected to God. You're driving a wedge. And I've come to deal with that. You've taken this system and this, this system that was put in place for the time and, and where it allowed people to have an opportunity to connect with God. The, the system that was in place is not that it was a bad system. At first, it was introduced as a way, the only way that people could be connected with God. But people have now taken that. And he's saying, you've commercialized this. The exchange rates you're putting on this currency, you're, you're making it so difficult for people to connect with God. It's become somewhat corrupt. And I'm not okay with that. It's pushing people away. It's making it more and more difficult for people to worship God. And people are feeling segregated. People are feeling marginalized because their ethnicity or their social status or their gender isn't the right one. That's what was happening. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to put an end to all of this. 
Because this feeling of condemnation and shame that people would have felt if they didn't have enough money or the right money or that feeling of shame that people were being made, being made to feel when they're just trying to connect with God, it's driving a wedge. It's a barrier. And I've come to deal with that, Jesus said. And he did. And as Christians, we believe Jesus came. He lived He died on a cross. Three days later, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father. And what Jesus did through his sacrifice and what God did by sending his son to the earth, we would then, after what Christ came to do, be able to declare with the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 1, where he says this, and this is the day of which we live. This is the time in which we live. This is post-resurrection. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's read it together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more. That shame, that condemnation, Jesus came to deal with that and to remove it once and for all. Do you know what was arguably the most difficult part of the crucifixion when Jesus gave his life? There was a number of moments that were truly difficult for him. The moment where God had to turn his back on Jesus because he couldn't look upon sin and Jesus bore the sin, that was that. that. But it was also, I believe, the shame that Jesus bore as he hung on that cross for you and for me. It's the shame. Scripture describes the fact that Jesus actually became Shame. So just think about those times when you've messed up so bad or you've done something that you regret or you woke up the next day after doing something that you never wanted to do or you said something to somebody and, so, and all of a sudden they found out and that's that guilty shame of making a mistake or messing up and what you carry because of that past mistake. Just think of that feeling of shame for a moment that I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have felt at some point. That guilt, that shame that we carry sometimes. Jesus took all of that for every single person who would ever live, and he bore that shame upon himself. He took our place. He felt that shame. He felt that guilt. In other words, he took our place, and so shame and guilt went on him, and because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross through his death and resurrection and and, and his ascension, because of Jesus, condemnation now has no place anymore. It was a knockout punch to condemnation. For those who receive Christ, For those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, shame is no longer to play any role in your life. I want you to hear that. Shame has no place. Shame does no good. That feeling of hopelessness or condemnation has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Maybe some of you this morning have been living with some sort of shame for far too long. And you've been carrying that burden for a long time now over something that, yes, you may have done. But you continue to carry that, and it continues to drive a wedge in your relationship with God. 
It continues to be a barrier between you truly experiencing a close relationship with God. When Jesus declared on the cross that it is finished, then he literally meant it is finished. Sin, shame, condemnation, no more. It is done. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might be even a believer and you might see, see that and read it and say, okay, I, I've heard that, yes, but how come I feel it? How come I feel shame? How come I feel this condemnation in my life at times? I want to tell you, it's a lie and it's from the enemy. It is not of God. Let me explain this very quickly. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Maybe you've heard some of these words, these words before. I grew up hearing these words in church. Condemnation, if I had to describe to you condemnation, I would say that it is a hopelessness that leads you to believe there's no point. There's no point. Condemnation is a hopelessness that leads you to believe that, that there's no point. Condemnation will actually oftentimes lead you back to the very thing that separated, that, that drove that wedge between you and God in the first place. Because condemnation will say to you, that's what you did. That, and, and when you feel bad for it, it'll just drive you back, say, well, I did it before, I'm probably going to do it again, so what, what, just, just as well. I, 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 there's no point. There's no point to even try. And then before you know it, if you're not careful, condemnation will create a pattern or a lifestyle, and you'll look back and say, how did I get here? Well, one of the ways, I think, is because the enemy uses shame and condemnation. Now, conviction is the work of the Spirit of God. Conviction is the work of the Spirit of God that reminds you who you are. That's a difference. I read once that conviction should actually convict you of your righteousness in Christ. That who he's called you to be. Condemnation is opposite. Condemnation focuses on the sin Conviction isn't focused on the sin, it's focused on who you are. You see, condemnation will try to make you believe that you have no connection with God, that you can't be loved by God because of what you did, because of who you are. In the book of Revelation 12.10, it says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah. And this sentence here is what stands out. For the accuser, everyone say accuser. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. It just doesn't stop. The accuser has been hurled down. This here, notice that title, the accuser. This is the only time in the scriptures that we see this title, accuser. See, we often think that the enemy's main job is temptation. Right? And, and it is. I mean, temptation, he will use temptation to try to cause us to trip up and, and, or, or as a snare or a hurdle in our lives. That's a fact. And although he's very good at tempting us to do something wrong, I believe that the biggest, one of the biggest tactics of the enemy isn't just temptation, but it's accusation. It's accusation. In other words, it's not just getting you to do something that you shouldn't do, but when you trip up, 
What accusation does, it comes over and it holds you down. And it's not just about what you've done, but accusation will say, because of what you've done, this is now who you are. And it'll tell lies and it'll keep you down. That's what shame and condemnation will do and that's what the accuser will do. He'll say that, he'll convince you that you are something after you do something. And that's what can make you feel the shame and condemnation that can so easily permeate our lives. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've felt his words. Maybe you've felt the words of the accuser. After what you did, how could God love you? After how bad you messed up, he could never forgive you for that. That's the voice of the accuser. After all you've done, you can never make a difference. You're never going to amount to anything. After what you've did, you can't, you won't, your kids will never, your marriage won't. That is the voice of the accuser that tries to keep you down. The accuser will hurl all sorts of thoughts and insults at you that will make you feel shame and have negative thoughts. And Dr. Henry Cloud talks about the three P's of shame, and I thought this was very appropriate. He talks about the three P's of, of shame. The first one is this, that shame, shame-based thoughts are very, number one, personal. They'll be very personal. You'll, you'll, you'll think, shame-based thoughts are things like, I'm a failure. It's, it's a definition of who, who you are. What's wrong with me? It's not what you did. It's something, it's, it's more about who you are now. And all of a sudden, it becomes very personal, this shame. That must be who I am. Secondly, it's pervasive. It won't just stay there with the mistake you made, but it'll be pervasive in all different areas of your life. All of a sudden, you'll think things like, I'm not just a bad person in that regard, but I'm going to be a terrible father. I can't be a good husband. And all areas of your life will be affected by that. And then he said the third one is that it's permanent, that you have permanent thoughts, that I'm I'm always going to be this way. It's not going to, I'm always going to make that mistake. And all of a sudden, these shame-based thoughts can be so, so personal, so pervasive, and so permanent. But that is a barrier, and that is a lie of the enemy. I want you to hear this from John chapter 14, verse 26. On the other hand, this is what we've got to re- realize and understand. It says this, it says, but the advocate, everyone say Advocate. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send you in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. That's what the advocate does. I thank God that I have an advocate. An advocate is a defender. An advocate is someone who comes to your aid. We have an accuser and we have an advocate. And you have to choose which voice you're going to allow yourself to listen to. The voice of the accuser, who's going to be shaming us and making us feel condemnation over every mistake, or the advocate, who's going to remind you that that's not who I've called you to be. That's not who you are in Christ. That's not, that's not what defines you. You're better than that. It's going to call. It's like parenting. 
I, th- I thought of this, Pastor Megan mentioned it. It's like parenting. When your child makes a mistake, you can make a decision. You can condemn them because of it. I can't believe you did this. What did you do? You made a mistake. Or I can call the best out of my child. In love, I want to look at my son or my daughter and say, yes, you made a mistake, but that's not who you are. You can be better than that. Dad expects more of you than that. You can do it. That's not who you are. And that's what God the Father is. When I've messed up, I'm thankful I had a father that did this, but my heavenly father does not condemn me because of my mistakes. But he reminds me that I'm bigger than that, that he's called me to be bigger than that, and that he is able to help me through it. The second type of barrier that can prevent us from experiencing a connection with God is this word chaos. (laughs) Chaos. If you look at this outer court where Jesus showed up, not only was there a lot of condemnation and shame being used to make people feel inadequate and not connected and barriers in that regard, but also it's just chaotic. <laughs> it's, just, it's just chaos. I mean, there are noises and smells and people are shouting and bartering and there's all kinds of things going on. It's just chaos. And again, this is a huge area, a massive area with potentially hundreds and thousands of people plus animals of all sorts. And this place that was supposed to be a place of worship and a place for people to come and connect with God, all of a sudden, has turned in this place that has completely, has turned into this system that now was completely out of control. It was just crazy. It was chaotic. It's interesting what chaos will do to the human soul. Chaos, it will tell us It'll tell you that you can't connect here. It, it, just, it, just, it just puts so many barriers between you being able to have a connection when there's so much chaos around. I mean, just think about it for a moment. The, the amount of information we're receiving at a breakneck speed is adding to that chaos in life. It just adds to it. I mean, I've heard it said that we're living at the speed of light instead of the speed of life. <laughs> And, and, and the truth is that, that this generation, we have been, uh, we've never been so connected before when it comes to being connected to the entire world, but yet we can be very disconnected with what's just in front of us or before us. I've been there. I've been on date night where the distraction of my kids is removed and the babysitter's taking care of that. My wife and I can go out. And, and before I know it, if I'm not careful... There'll be things, I could be, and she'll be like, uh, hello. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Or your mind can go somewhere else. You'll be thinking, what I got to do tomorrow? I got to do this at work. I can't forget this. And you're not, and my wife will know, you're not here. You're not listening. It can be difficult to connect with someone who's right in front of you. So think of how difficult it can be for us to connect with a God that we can't see, but who's there. A lot of distractions can be barriers in our relationship with God, correct? And that can come from chaos. I mean, we, we allow so much noise and distraction information. I mean, one minute, you can be trying to read a devotional on your device, right? And I, I get devotional plans on my phone, and that's great, but all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you'll be doing a devotional, and a minute later, you're looking at how, how, that, how you can... Uh, how you can Uh, carve a a watermelon or you can slice up a watermelon with dental floss. And you're like, how did I get here? 
And all of a sudden it goes from that and you're like, these are 10 things I can clean with Coca-Cola. This is amazing. (laughs) Things are coming at all angles. We can get so distracted so easily. We don't even know how we got there. And before you know it, you're reading about tragedies that are happening all around this world. And you're receiving all this news and information that's just blown up by media. And you're all of a sudden digesting things that we're never meant to carry. And we're seeing all kinds of situations and circumstances. And I'm reading about a family on the other side of the world that I have absolutely no connection to. But they're going through this and their son is. And all of a sudden, I'm like, how can I fix this? I'm so invested. I'm so passionate because I care because I'm a pastor and I need to care about people. And now, but I've got my own kids to worry about. I've got my own family to take care of. But we got our own church and our things. How am I going to? And all of a sudden... Chaos can build up in our lives if we're not careful. And we can be feeling all these sorts of feelings. And it can bombard our minds and it can put a barrier between us and God if we're not careful. Jesus came into this place that was so chaotic. And he walks in and he's like, no, no, no. So want to hit the table, but I won't. You wouldn't forget it, though. And he says, no, I'm, I can't, we, we can't continue to do this. And he, he pushes it out of way. He's saying, this is a place of connection and communication with God, but you've made it chaotic. And I don't want chaos to keep people from me. Because the chaos starts telling us things that all of a sudden I'm worried about something that I shouldn't be worrying about. Or or I'm frustrated by something. I'm fearful all of a sudden. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And I don't know if I can handle this. And as long as it's chaotic, I can't connect. I can't. And Jesus was about to change the way people would connect with him forever. But also... I think he's demonstrating to us there's things that we have to do to make sure that things aren't getting in the way of us connecting with God. You see, silence, I'm talking about silent mode, silence can be scarce these days. Or may I even say it's almost becoming non-existent for many people in their lives. When was the last time that you intentionally sat in silence. Not, not silence because you went to sleep and you're asleep and it's quiet. No, that's what I'm not talking about. That don't qualify. Well, when was the last time you intentionally sat in silence? Silence can be uncomfortable for some of us, right? We're so used to the noise of life that even when we're alone, we can catch ourselves. First thing we do is reaching for headphones to put in to listen to music or a podcast or something because we just can't can't be alone with our own thoughts. (laughs) Or you sit in your car by yourself and all of a sudden you're turning on that radio or music or whatever. Appreciating the silence can be very difficult to do, but what I su- could I suggest that I believe it's imperative for us to do? If you don't have moments of silence weaved into the rhythms of your life, that you would, I would ask that you consider making this change. 
And all the reasons I could go down and you can read about, there's things that are written scientifically, experts, all various backgrounds, benefits of having times of solitude and taking a break, all of that. I don't have time to get into all of those details, but may I just suggest one, one sample or one thing, and that's simply to look no farther than the life of Jesus. And here's where I'm about to introduce what I said at the beginning is a habit or a discipline that we need to cultivate in our lives in order to combat the barriers that will come between us and God as the band comes back. Because if you were to look at the course of Jesus' ministry, the path of his ministry, where he walks and what he did, do you know how many times Jesus just gets by himself to just pray and be alone? Jesus would often get up early, take time to be alone so that then he could re-engage and do effectively what he was called to do. And he wouldn't do it without first taking that time or making sure that pattern was in his life. Don't be mad at me for this because I, I, I you know, I, I think hard work's important. I'm there. I think it's important. I think what you're doing and striving after and, and accomplishing through your studies, through your workplace is that's fine, it's good. Work hard, be faithful, all of that. Be the best. I believe Christians should be the best employers, in the, employer, employers and employees in this world. That we should be so committed to our work. But I wonder sometimes if the culture and our surroundings has inserted this value that we're less than if we, don't get, if we take time to be away and be quiet. That culture will make us feel less than if we actually, actually put times of quiet or space or margin in our lives. Because, you know, what we hear in culture in these days, everyone's all about making things happen, getting things done, got to get her done. It's all about the grind. It's, it's about working hard. It's about being effective. It's about doing, 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 working. I'm, I'm not weak. I'm good. You know, that's what, what we do. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesus got away. Do we believe that what we have to do is more important than him? If he knew and acted on the importance of getting away, getting alone, and getting quiet, shouldn't we? Do you know why one of the reasons I think God invented sleeping? This is one of those things, you know, it's, this is not necessarily the opinions of this station, but one of the reasons I think God invented sleeping um, is simply that it's proved every single day it's proof all the time that you're not God because you're out. <laughs> but yet the world is still turning. Your heart is still beating. Your lungs are still breathing. As long as I'm alive on this earth. When we're asleep, all of the, we, we can think, you know, you know and, then, and then all of a sudden we wake up in the morning and we're like, I don't know how things went on without me. I got to get going. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I work 16 hours a day, da, 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 da. But God's like, you have no idea. You have no idea. For what is worth, Jesus vacated. He got away from the chaos. And maybe we need 
some margin too. And you, you might say, well, I can't really afford margin. I mean, from the time my kids or my young kids get up early in the morning, from the time I wake up to the time I crash, I just have no margin. But can I tell you, I don't think you can afford not to have margin. But I don't know if we can afford not to have margin because margin is actually an act of worship in some ways. Because when you build margin into your life, you say to yourself and the whole world that there is a God and I'm not him. And I'm not meant to do it all or carry it all on my own. And I'm going to trust him. Being intentional and having a pattern of margin in your life, a pattern of taking time to be still, to read God's word, to pray, to spend time between just you and God is critical to combat, combat the voice of the accuser and to instead make sure we're hearing the voice of the advocate, first of all. And it's also to combat the busyness and the chaos of life that will distract you from growing in your relationship with God and having those areas of margin in your life. Creating margin in your life might be a hard decision, but it will save you from a harder decision. Because one day you're gonna have to make a decision about something that you never wanted to make, but if you had built in margin in your life, then I would have never got to this place. Because when we don't build in margin, all of a sudden our lives will try to grab for other things that will be an escape for us. And that could be a pattern in our lifestyle, it could be a, a, sub, a substance, it could be an addiction in some way, and we'll find ways to escape in the middle of the noise if we don't intentionally take time to make that margin between us and God. Because I think half the time we do such dumb stuff in life, let's be honest, some of us have done dumb stuff in our lives, and the mistakes that we've made, if we're to be honest, I think some of the, you know, that could be maybe you found at some point yourself drifting from God in your relationship with God, or maybe you've made unhealthy decisions, or you went off track in this area of your life, or you did this by mistake or made this. I think sometimes it just happens because we're weary in the chaos. And it just finds us. It's not, it's not just a temptation oftentimes, it's just that idea of escape and whatever it is that fills that void. It can simply be that area because when we don't have margin, we'll take time. When we don't take time, sorry, to be still and find a place of solitude, we'll eventually allow something else to find that place and provide that escape and lead us perhaps down a path we never intended to take. So as I bring this to a close, condemnation will be a barrier between true freedom of experiencing Christ because shame and guilt that the accuser will, will hur hurl your way are not of God. And you need to listen to the voice of the advocate, first of all. Conviction is the work of the spirit that reminds you of who you are and who he's called you to be. And chaos needs to be combated with margin in our lives. Chaos will tell us we're not connected Jesus, just like he was clearing out the temple, we need to clear out some of the noise and intentionally lean into God. Jesus came to remove every obstacle that would keep us from connecting with him. You see this scene in the temple courts of Jesus turning tables, kicking stuff over, driving out the animals, all of that. This was so significant because he was actually functionally removing the system that was in place. 
He was literally clearing out this sacrificial system to make a way for a new system that he was about to make through the one true sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice that he was going to offer himself as the perfect lamb of God. So that system was not required anymore. So I'm going to remove it. I'm going to take it out. It's chaotic. It's difficult. It presents condemnation. It makes it difficult for people to connect with a God who loves them. And I'm going to give myself and I'm going to offer myself. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to bore, bear your shame and your sin. And I'm going to offer you a way to know me and to have a relationship with God and to experience freedom and forgiveness. And all you have to do is follow me. <laughs> all you have to do is accept what I'm offering you. And I'll bring that to your life. I've heard it said, I think Pastor Andy often, Andy Stanley often says, Jesus came and he will make your, Jesus will make your life better. And I think Jesus will, and he says, Jesus will also make you better at life. Because it reminds us of who we are, it calls the best out of us. We put patterns and habits that the enemy doesn't want us to have. So we can live for him. He did and he accomplished once and for all what the religious system was unable to do. And that's who God is. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon.